You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. Welcome to episode 78 of the GDPR Weekly Show. And coming up in this week's episode, we have news of a data breach of entrant data for the Ride London Charity Bicycle Ride. We have news that the Department for Education has exposed the names of whistleblowers in a data breach. In a follow-up to previous articles that we've had about the data breach at Equifax, we now have news that the US authorities have brought charges against a number of Chinese hackers in relation to the Equifax data breach. The cosmetics company Estee Lauder has suffered a huge data breach this week, and we have details of that for you. We then have one of our articles that we run from time to time looking at different issues about GDPR, and this one's looking at how independent does your DPO, your data protection officer, need to be when they're working on GDPR for your organisation. We then look at credential stuffing and good password policies. We then have news that Facebook's Cupid Arrow has been blunted by the Irish Data Protection Commission this week. And finally for this week, we look at applying GDPR best practice in relation to human resources and in relation to HR. So, a good mix of articles for you this week. I do hope you find something there that's useful and informative to you. And, as always, we always welcome your feedback on the programme. If you have any feedback, please send it to us at podcast.insurity.co.uk. We do read every single email that you send in to us. Unfortunately, we don't have time to reply to them all, but we do read every one, and wherever possible, we look to implement your suggestions into future editions of the GDPR weekly show. And with that in mind, if you'd like to be interviewed on a future edition of the GDPR weekly show, or indeed you'd like us to advertise your product or service, provided it's GDPR related, of course, on the GDPR weekly show, then please get in touch with us. Please drop us an email to podcast at insurety.co.uk and one of our team will get back to you just as soon as we can. Check us out on Facebook. So we begin this week with news of a data breach at the Ride London cycling event. Organisers of the Ride London cycling event say they are urgently looking into a data breach involving potential participants' personal details. Organisers believe that less than 2,100 people have been affected by the issue, which saw entrants receive other people's ballot results. The event, due to be held in August, is open to 80,000 applications and last year, 28,032 riders completed it. London and Surrey Cycling Partnership, the group behind the Ride London event, have apologised for the error. Ride London, which claims to be the world's greatest festival of cycling, is a 100-mile closed road event which takes place in the streets of the capital and travels through Surrey. This year's event is due to take place on the 16th of August. It's normally oversubscribed, so a ballot system is used to select the potential riders. The mix-up over data this year means that some potential riders are still unclear whether they have actually won a place in the ride or not. London Surrey Cycling Partnership Chief Executive Nick Beetle said the company was working to establish how many people have been affected, but it believed it to be less than 3% of the total of more than 70,000 people who had entered this year's ballot. We are working with our contractors to establish the full facts, but it appears that the issue was caused by an error in the collation of the acceptance letter and the addressed envelope in the final stage of a mailing process, which led to the people affected receiving the name, address, date, birth of the one other person, he added. We apologise sincerely for this error, 
and we will be contacting all the people affected. Chris Whitehead from Rotherham received what he thought would be his ballot result in the post on Monday, but while the envelope was addressed to him, the letter itself contained someone else's full name, address and date of birth. I was shocked, he told BBC News. I felt shocked that in this day and age a breach like this would happen and was left wondering who has my details. There is a chance my identity could be stolen. Why haven't they done any basic checking? He also said that he had contacted them at 11 o'clock GMT and it had taken them until about 1800 GMT to post an update about it on their Twitter feed. Potential Ride London tweeted its apology for the issue with a limited number of Potential Ride London ballot results mailing at 17.40 on Monday this week. All applicants will be informed of their ballot result by Thursday, according to the event helpline, meaning that more people might yet receive the wrong letter over the next two days. The London and Surrey Cycling Partnership said that they had notified the ICO. However, the ICO said it had not yet received a data breach report from the partnership. So we will keep an eye on this and no doubt bring you an update in a future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show once it becomes clearer just exactly how many people were involved in this data breach and that a data breach has been investigated by the ICO. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. The Department for Education has found itself in a serious data breach here in the UK this week after naming some whistleblowers who've been involved in the complaint. The Department of Education chose not to redact the names of three whistleblowers who gave evidence relating to cheating allegations against the multi-academy trust. The disclosure cast doubts on the government's commitment to protecting teachers who raised concerns under whistleblowing policy that they believed to be in the public interest under the assurance that their names and details will remain anonymous. It was revealed last week that one of the three whistleblowers was left too frightened to give evidence to a cheating probe. The whistleblower had received a threatening legal letter from NET Academy's Trust, the accused Academy Trust, a few days after the government investigation opened, although the Academy's Trust itself said the legal letter was unrelated to the whistleblowing. In what was initially believed to be a simple mistake, the names of the trio were stated no less than five times across 164 pages of a Department of Education response to a Freedom of Information request. It was published on a website run by the charity My Society called What Do They Know, which aims to make it easier for people to make requests and share the replies publicly. Dr Mary Boosted, Joint General Secretary of the National Education Union, which represents two of the individuals, said the serious data breach had happened on Monday, and she had since reported the data breach. At the time, when she received the original information, she believed it to simply be an error, but as emerged that the Department of Education actively opted not to redact the information. The Freedom of Information request was submitted in November by Shauna Roberts, a parent at Waltham Holy Cross Primary School in Essex. Shauna Roberts sought all information held by the Department relating to investigations at the NET Academy's Trust, which had recently been given the go-ahead to take over Waltham Holy Cross Primary School. NET Academy's Trust, while supporting the primary school, was accused of encouraging staff to over-scaffold support in key stages 1 and 2, writing by using post-it notes to guide pupils. The conversion was delayed while the government investigated the cheating allegations, but the probe found they were unsubstantiated. The Department of Education said 
The names of the three individuals were not read active from the Freedom of Information response because the requester was already aware of their identity and had shared their names via her solicitors with a number of other organisations, including NET Academy's Trust, as part of her legal claim. They then claimed the Freedom of Information response was only shared with the requester and the department did not publish the information online. But a spokesperson for My Society challenged the latter statement, adding that the department has had... 4,525 requests since the site was launched 11 years ago, so they should be well aware that when a request is made through what do they know, the response is automatically published online. It is understood that the what do they know site has temporarily hidden the Freedom of Information response from public view while it makes further inquiries. Liz Gardner, the acting chief executive of the Whistleblowing Charity Project, called for reforms to better safeguard whistleblowers. She said, if an employer divulges their name and they suffer as a result, they may bring a detriment claim at tribunal. But if someone other than an employer, such as the Department of Education, reveals their name, there's little recourse. She said people are less likely to speak out if it puts them in the line of fire. Confidentiality should be a shield for whistleblowers. Removing that shield endangers them and sends a poor message to others who might consider coming forward in the future. We've not yet received a response to our request for a statement from the Department of Education on this, but if we do receive a statement, we will, of course, bring it to you in a future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. If you're a regular listener to the GDPR Weekly Show, then you may remember that back in Episode 7 and Episode 15, of the GDPR Weekly Show, we spent some time discussing the major data breach at Equifax. If you've not been a listener that long and you'd like to catch up on those episodes, just a reminder that you can find all the episodes on our website at https colon slash slash www.insurety.co.uk forward slash podcast. Insurety is E-N-S-U-R-E-T-Y. This week has seen an update on the uh, Equifax data breach in that US prosecutors have charged four Chinese military hackers over the cyber attack at Equifax, which resulted in a data breach involving more than 147 million credit reports. The indictment was announced Monday this week against Wu Ziyong, Wang Yan, Zhu Qi and Li Li. Apologies if I'm not pronouncing those correctly. The U.S. Justice Department said the four were working for the Chinese People's Liberation Army. The Chinese hackers are said to be part of the APT-10 group, a notorious Beijing-backed hacking group that was previously blamed for hacking into dozens of major U.S. companies and government systems, including HPE, IBM and NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Attorney General William Barr said it was the latest in a long line of cyber attacks launched by China, which had also included the targeting of health insurance giant Anthem, the Marriott Starwood Hotel breach, and the US Office of Personnel Management. FBI Deputy Director David Bowditch, at a press conference in Washington, D.C. this week, said, This is the largest theft of sensitive personal identifiable information by state-sponsored hackers ever recorded. Today, we hold the Chinese military hackers accountable for their criminal actions and we remind the Chinese government that we have the capability to find the hackers that that nation repeatedly deploys against us. 
Acrifax first revealed the data breach back in September 2017, months after it discovered hackers had broken into its systems. An investigation showed that the company had failed to patch a web server it knew was vulnerable for weeks, which had let the hackers crash the servers and steal massive amounts of data. Names, addresses, social security numbers and millions more driver license and credit card numbers were stolen in the breach. It's important to realise the breach didn't only affect US residents, but also British and Canadian residents. Etrefax Chief Executive Richard Smith retired shortly after the breach, but didn't escape criticism. Senator Chuck Schumer called the breach and his credit giants handling the aftermath of it one of the most egregious examples of corporate malfeasance since Enron. Etrefax later settled with the Federal Trade Commission to pay at least $575 million in fines. Mark Bedor, the credit giant's current chief executive, said he was grateful for the FBI and Justice Department's work to secure the indictments against the individuals. A spokesperson for the Chinese consulate in New York did not respond to our request for a comment. If we get any more news on this, we will of course bring it to you in a future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. Cosmetics firm Estee Lauder has been hit with a huge data breach this week with more than 440 million user records exposed in an open cloud database. Jeremiah Fowler, a cybersecurity researcher from Security Discovery, uncovered a huge and completely unprotected customer database owned by the cosmetic giant Estee Lauder this week. More than 440 million individual data entries were found sitting in a plain text database on the cloud. The records included email addresses and data from local customer management systems. No payment data or sensitive employee data was compromised. Fowler in his report wrote that this company has been a household name for over 70 years and had an annual revenue of $14.863 billion in 2019. It seems logical there would be a large data set associated with that business. He added that he still hasn't identified how many different people can be found in the database. Instead, he rushed to alert the company to the issue. Estee Lauder managed to close the database within 24 hours of being alerted to the breach, but it's unclear how long the data would remain exposed before the breach was discovered. Internal emails could be used for phishing attacks, with hackers posing as team members to trick employees into downloading malware. IP addresses, ports, pathways and storage information could also be used to map out the company's internal local area network or indeed their wide area network. Estee Lauder have not yet responded to our request for a comment, nor have we been able to establish whether this breach has been notified to the UK ICO. But we will attempt to follow that up and hopefully bring you an update in next week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. A question we often get asked is, can a DPO, a data protection officer, actually hold another role within your company or organisation as well as being the DPO? Well, there are two ways of looking at this from a purely practical perspective in a number of companies, particularly smaller companies. I suppose it's going to be likely that the DPO will be providing other roles within the company. And perhaps in that sense, it's a bit like looking at the DPO as being an internal legal counsel or head of legal. But again, you 
might have that person perform different roles within your organisation, but at the same time, you have to respect in view of their legal status, their total independence. And that's, I think, the key issue to get over when you're thinking about a DPO, a Data Protection Officer, is that the GDPR rules themselves in Article 37, Paragraph 1 of the GDPR, requires the designation of a DPO in three specific cases, where the personal data processing is carried out by a public authority or body, where the core activities of the data controller or the data processor consist of processing operations which require regular and systematic monitoring of data subjects on a large scale, or where the core activities of the data controller or data processor consist of processing on a large scale of special categories of data or personal data relating to criminal convictions or offences. Now, where it becomes complicated is that there are no laid-down definitions of what a core activity is. Let's take example a hospital, because you might think automatically, well, a hospital has to have a DPO. And I would agree with you on that, but if you play devil's advocate for the moment, then you could say, well, the core activity of a hospital is to provide healthcare. But a hospital also needs to process health data, such as patients' health records. Therefore, processing personal data should be considered a core activity, which means hospitals that handle substantial amounts of European data must designate a DPO. Now, while some say that it's appropriate for a chief information security officer to serve as a DPO because the roles complement each other, others argue that the DPO position should be separate. Our view is very much that the DPO position should be separate because otherwise the DPO is being asked to audit the same processes that they probably put in place within the organisation in the first place. And that clearly isn't a good situation. You need checks and balances in these scenarios. And that's why a number of organisations, ourselves included, opt to provide external DPO services to companies and organisations. And we see this as an ideal solution because it guarantees the DPO's independence. Hopefully it guarantees the DPO having a high level of knowledge of the world of GDPR and everything that's involved. And it can also provide a very cost-effective solution to the organisation because by using an external company as their DPO, you avoid the full salary cost of needing to employ a full-time employee within your company solely to be the DPO. And so if that's something that would interest you, if you'd like us to consider being your DPO or indeed you'd like to consider using us as your DPO, then we'd be very delighted to discuss that with you. So please do just drop us a line by email to podcasts at insurety.co.uk, E-N-S-U-R-E-T-Y.co.uk, and one of our specialists will get back to you just as soon as we can. And we currently act as external DPO for a large number of companies and organisations across the UK, and we are now very experienced in providing that service, and we are certain we can provide you with a cost-efficient DPO service for your organization. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. It's easy to forget that credential stuffing and password spraying attacks are reportable data breaches in compliance with GDPR. So it's important that you have a way of detecting whether those 
uh, credential stuffing attacks or password spraying attacks are taking place. Any organisation based in the EU or with EU citizens among its customers needs to comply with GDPR, of course, with tools for protecting data with appropriate technical safeguards. Although GDPR itself does not explicitly state what technical safeguards should be, it does state that security control should be considered alongside the risk of a personal data breach. So, although GDPR does not explicitly mention password requirements, passwords present the easiest way for someone to gain unauthorised access to personally identifiable information, which of course is what GDPR is all there to protect. Verizon, well-known IT company's 2019 data breach report, revealed that 29% of breaches involved the use of stolen credentials, i.e. stolen usernames and passwords. With billions of usernames and passwords available online from previous breaches, a high volume of attacks result from credential stuffing or password spraying, i.e. where a potential hacker will just use password after password after password at random until he finds one that lets him get in, or her get in. Both credential stuffing and password spraying take advantage of password reuse via large-scale automated login attempts. The difference between the two is that credential stuffing uses a large number of username and password combinations, while password spraying just simply uses the most common passwords. Once the attackers have found their way into an account, they either try and remain undetected or take over the account by resetting the account password. The primary objective of these attacks is most often financial gain, but can also include the theft of personally identifiable information, such as credit card details. Now, given that these attacks do not themselves use hacking techniques, there has been some debate amongst GDPR practitioners as to whether they should actually be considered a reportable breach. However, the ICOs ruled quite firmly now that they should be, and indeed they have previously fined Uber £385,000 for exposing user and driver data. And that data came about because of a credential stuffing attack. The ICO pointed out that GDPR, a data breach, is defined as a breach of security leading to the accidental or unlawful destruction, loss, alteration, unauthorised disclosure of or access to personal data transmitted, stored or otherwise processed. So to help with this, the ICO has now issued some guidance into what requirements an organisation should set for its user passwords. And there are three general requirements for any password system that you'll need to consider. The first is password length, and the recommendation from the ICO is that you should set a suitable minimum password length, which it says should be no less than 10 characters, but not a maximum length. Obviously, the password should be hashed when it's stored, and if you're correctly hashing your password, then the output should be the same length for every password, and therefore the only limit to password length should be the way your website is coded. If you absolutely must set a maximum length due to the limitation of your website code, then tell users what it is before they try to enter their password. Now, personally, we find a 10-character limit minimum uh, quite interesting here because for a number of years it's been considered that 8 characters was a suitable length for a password, minimum length, and now it's 10. So we go with the ICO's guidance on that, of course. The second requirement which the ICO says a password should have is that it should contain special characters. And so, you know, a special character is any character that's not alphanumeric. So it might be an exclamation mark, might be an at sign, might be a quotation sign. Uh, any sign 
any character that's not a character in the range A to Z or 1 to 0. And the third suggestion from the ICO is that you should have password blacklisting. So you don't allow your users to use a common weak password, nor do you allow them to um, reuse the same password time after time. So it's suggesting that when a user enters the password they want to use, you screen that password against your password blacklist of the most commonly used passwords, which might be just common words or phrases that relate to the service. It might be the word password itself. You'd be surprised how many people set their password to password. Or it might be phrases that are current in the news at the moment, which you think actually people are likely to realise that that could be what people use as their password. Explain to users that this is what you're doing and why your their password will be rejected if they use something like that. But other than that, try not to set any restrictions on how users should create a password. If you can, it's a good idea to properly set up and configure a password strength meter so that you can visually display to the user how strong their password is. Finally, remind your users that they should not reuse passwords from other sites. In most circumstances, you should not have any idea what your users' passwords are. However, some companies will actually retract compromised credentials that are traded on the dark web and will check these credentials against the hashes they hold on their system to see if it's a match. If you decide that this is something you want to do, you need to carefully consider the potential legal implications of obtaining such a list and you will need to explain very clearly how you use that data to your users. The other issue that's always been a matter of discussion is when passwords should expire, how long should you let a user keep a password for? And the ICO is actually saying is that you should only set password expirations if they are absolutely necessary for your particular circumstances. They point out the regular expiry often causes people to change just a single strong password for a series of weak passwords. As a general rule, therefore, getting your users to create a strong initial password and only changing them for pressing reasons, such as a personal data breach. When you deploy a password reset process, you should ensure that the process itself is secure. Do not send passwords over email, even if they're temporary. Use one-time links and ensure that you do not leak the credentials in any referral headers. You should also not be in a position where a member of your staff is able to read out a user's password to them, i.e. over the phone in a service call, as this indicates that you're storing passwords in plain text, which, as has already been said, is clearly not appropriate. If you require a password to validate a user over the phone, set a separate phone password for the account rather than the password that the user keys in. So just some thoughts there from the ICO on passwords, and as passwords are such a key part of data, of course, then it's probable that we will come back to this at some future point in a future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. Facebook dating in Europe suffered a setback this week. Facebook was planning to go live with Facebook dating across Europe on Thursday, the day before Valentine's Day. However, the Data Protection Commission, the DPR, PC in Ireland threw a spanner in the works when Facebook announced its plan to introduce Facebook dating to the European Union. The Commission claimed that it did not receive a data processing impact assessment until yesterday. A data processing impact assessment, DPIA, is required under the EU's GDPR, General Data Protection Regulation. 
After inspectors from the Irish Data Protection Commission visited Facebook's Dublin European headquarters last week, the company decided to put its plans on hold indefinitely. It notified Irish officials on Wednesday of the cancellation of the rollout of Facebook dating in Europe. In a statement, Facebook said it wanted to be sure it was in compliance with GDPR. A spokesman for Facebook said, We are taking a bit more time to make sure the product is ready for the European market. We have worked carefully to create strong privacy safeguards and have shared this information with the Irish Data Protection Commission ahead of the European rollout. The spokesperson also said that the company had completed and submitted the DPIA. According to the Deputy Commissioner in Ireland, Graham Doyle, this paperwork was requested last week. Facebook turned the assessment in only a day before the intended launch, which was not enough time for the Data Protection Commission to review the document. We were very concerned that this was the first that we'd heard from Facebook Ireland about this new feature, considering it was their intention to roll it out 24 hours later, said Doyle. Facebook initially announced plans for the dating service way back in its 2018 developer conference. Facebook dating launched last year in the US. People have also been finding love online in 19 other countries using Facebook dating, including Brazil, Canada, Mexico and Thailand. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. One area where GDPR has had an impact across a wide number of organisations is in the whole area of HR and human relations. Today's HR teams potentially have access to huge amounts of data, which can bring great rewards for they to use that data intelligently. But that same amount of data brings challenges under GDPR, in particular through data subject access requests, but also towards protection against data breaches. What's interesting about GDPR is the way it cracks down on companies that take a laissez-faire approach to data privacy. Companies that fail to properly protect employees' personal data or are found to be misusing employees' personal data can face defined, uh, as you know, the potential penalties under GDPR can be anything up to 20 million euros or 4% of the annual worldwide turnover of the organisation, whichever is the greater. So it's obvious, of course, from that, that HR data must be properly secured and protected. If you think that no one would be interested in stealing your employee-related data, as opposed to, say, customers' credit card details, then think again. It may surprise you to know that medical data is ten times more valuable to criminals than credit card data. So the lesson is, if it contains personally identifiable information, data of any kind can be valuable. But with employee data in particular, the insider threat, whether malicious or just through sheer ignorance, can be as big a problem as external hackers. The example that comes to mind is a Boeing employee who inadvertently caused a breach that might have exposed the personal data of 36,000 fellow Boeing employees, including their names, dates of birth and social security numbers. How did that come about? Sheer ignorance, really. The unlucky employee was having trouble formatting a spreadsheet, so he sent it to his spouse for help, unaware that the spreadsheet contained hidden columns with confidential information. Closer to home here in the UK, a disgruntled employee of British supermarket Morrison's deliberately exposed Tolly's personal data online. In a landmark high court case, the supermarket was found liable for the breach. Just imagine the consequence of such a breach, now GDPR is in effect. The damage to a business's finances and reputation could be catastrophic, not to mention, of course, the damage it have done to your staff relations. 
But as well as sitting on the right side of the law, HR teams also need to ensure their data usage sits within the company's ethical boundaries. Most companies these days emphasise the culture of openness and honesty. If your data-driven HR activities fly in the face of that culture, for example by clumsily implementing data projects or poorly communicating how data is used, well that in itself could lead to massive morale and trust issues. That's why transparency is key. Transparency around what employee data you hold, what you're using it for, what you do with it. And it's important to add value for employees and emphasise the positive outcomes that can come about from you using their data that way. People are far happier for you to use their data when they feel they're getting something in return, whether it's better working conditions, more effective management, a safer environment, or whatever. So what good governance should you put in place for HR? Well, first is create your data governance procedures. If you haven't already, I would sincerely hope you have got them already. But if you haven't, please contact us at that podcast at insurity.co.uk as a matter of some urgency, and we will arrange to get those data governance procedures in place for you. Get consent for employee data, and that's really important with uh, data that's held on employees under GDPR. Be strict about who can and can't see what data and what they can use it for. Practice data minimization, so that means gather only essential data in the first place and then look at how you can anonymize that data wherever possible so that people can't tell who it is the data they're looking at refers to. And of course, protect and secure the data. All very important stuff and very important, not just for your organization's employees, but for the protection of your organization as a whole. So as I say, if you need help with implementing GDPR across your human resources department or across your payroll department, then please do get in touch with us via podcast at insurety.co.uk, E-N-S-U-R-E-T-Y.co.uk, and one of our very experienced specialists will get back to you and get you on the right track. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. So that brings us to the end of this week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. I hope you found it useful. I hope you found it entertaining. Please do let me know. Let me have your feedback by sending an email to podcast.insurity.co.uk. You can find out more about us at Insurity at www.insurity.co.uk. And I look forward to speaking to you again, same time, same place, next week. Have a good week, everybody, and remember to keep your data safe. Check us out on Facebook. The GDPR Weekly Show is an insurity production. Follow us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash insurity.